Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, I'm back, and I'm talking Saison. Well, actually, I'm talking American Farmhouse, and I'm talking with Bob Sylvester, recently mostly kind of somewhat retired from St. Somewhere Brewing, and back to being a grouchy home brewer. Bob is famous for his farmhouse-influenced ales, so just how does he capture that magic in a bottle? Preferably a green one. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Get ready. Saturday, May 7th is the American Homebrewers Association 25th Big Brew for National Homebrew Day. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to download the official recipes, the Community American Lager, and Dark Inception Imperial Porter. Find a homebrew supply shop and dust off your homebrewing skills with how-to videos. Plus, you'll get a promo code for $5 off an annual American Homebrewers Association membership when you make the Big Brew Pledge. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to get $5 off when you make the Big Brew Pledge by May 9th, 2022. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Below freezing in the mornings. So you traded in the sunny climes of Tampa and Tarpon Springs for cold mountainsides. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> no, no regrets. All right. And as I alluded to in the intro, it's spring. That means things are springing, or at least here in LA, things are raining and about to spring. And as we get into springtime, I start to think of Saison. Then again, I'm always thinking of Saison. And the sort of world of both Saison versus Farmhouse and where that line kind of lies and how best to execute both of those. So I figured I'd bring in somebody who could help me with, well, you know, actually give you some correct answers. Bob, welcome back, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me. So if you didn't gather it from the intro, Bob Sylvester, formerly of St. Somewhere Brewing Company in Tarpon Springs, Florida, is on the line with me to talk mixed cultures and how to best execute a farmhouse beer. But first, let's give the people the update. As I said, formerly of St. Somewhere Brewing, right? Uh, right. I'm, I'm still kind of St. Somewhere Brewing as we kind of became synonymous. 
so I'm I'm still uh, yeah I'm still the guy doing like the collabs and going to festivals and things like that. But uh, you know, really not involved with any of the day to day operations. Well, and I mean, you've moved completely out of the Bay Area now. Yeah, living uh, in Silva, North Carolina, which is about an hour outside of Asheville. Probably good that it's an hour outside because I kept thinking about you being there in Nashville and Mike being there in Nashville and the the power of that much grumpitude together. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, we've we've done a collab, so grumpy twins activate. And interestingly enough, uh, uh, Wayne Wombles from Cigar City lives about four miles from me. That's right, because he's up there working on the was a Canarchy has like a an R and D plant. Uh, yeah, it's called Oscar Blues. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, the the Canarchy uh, facility that was a a victim of of COVID early on, uh, but well, yeah, Wayne works um, you know out of Oscar Blues up here, which I pretty correct in saying produces more high lie than Cigar City in Tampa. Well, that, that also explains why I can get high lie out here now. Yeah, you know, that, that was weird when that showed up on the grocery shelves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, I know that when you had said that you were moving up to North Carolina, you had threatened at some point to go and get a homebrewing system and actually start homebrewing. Did you follow through on that threat? <laughs> I did. Uh, I bought um, – well, let me back up. I'm, I'm a pretty lazy person, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. Mm-hmm. So I, I bought uh, the uh, Anvil Foundry when the 10-gallon first came out. And it's uh, it's fantastic. I highly recommend it. I uh, got a uh, 220 or 240 hookup in the basement. People that aren't familiar with uh, the Anvil Foundry, it's a you know it's like grandfather. It's a all in one. Not really brewing a bag, but it has a malt pipe, so everything's done there except fermentation. Works well. It, it is actually kind of amazing how how much joy those all in one systems can actually bring back to your brew day. Yeah, a lot less equipment. I mean, it's one piece. Uh, you could do step mashing. You can uh, you can do just about anything on it. Please don't do decoctions. I still don't see it. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm not brewing anything that would be a decoction. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think, when I think of decoction, I don't think Bob Sylvester. No, no. The good thing is now that you are semi-retired from the professional brewing world mm-hmm. and are actively home brewing, that means you get to go back to being a know-it-all home brewer. <laughs> exactly. Actually, I'm 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 more laid back as a home brewer now. <laughs> I joined a homebrew club, uh, the uh, Blue Ridge Brewers Guild, which is in Waynesville, not too far from here. And um, you know, I'm I, I just sit back and whatever they want to do or talk about, I, I don't. You know, I'm not. I'm not trying to be that guy. Matter of fact, we're uh, entering in a all homebrew festival coming up the end of April, and um, they they wanted to do effectively one style. Uh, so everybody's brewing a saison, and I, I'm like, all right, let's. You guys pick the recipe. I'll make it. We'll see what happens. Good. I'm glad that it was a saison because for a moment there, when you said they all picked one style, I was thinking if somebody was going to torture you, it'd be like, let's make a hazy IPA. <laughs> no, no. You know, there are some of those in the club, but it's it's more of a, you know, standard uh, old school beer club. Now, 
you're doing home burning. You said, hey, you know, they're going to make a saison. This is part of the reason why I wanted to bring you on. I've told people all of my tips in the past about making saison, you know, open fermentation, start cool, rise up. Don't sit there and treat it like it's quike and run it at 95 degrees just because you can. Um, and otherwise, you know, try and keep things relatively simple. But you specialize in doing something I kind of think of as more farmhousey in nature. Uh, in fact, before we started uh, taping, you, we were talking about the fact that you just went down and brewed this year's iteration of uh, Farmhouse AF. Right. Let's talk a little bit about that kind of saison versus farmhouse idea, because to me it, it comes down to like what's actually going on microbiologically. Do you do you have thoughts? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean the you know the typical you know Belgian French saison is not uh, not a Brett beer, not a wild beer. They're you know a little more safe than uh, you know American farmhouse ales. Which, by the way, isn't to say that there is no bread. I mean, Phantom has a bread character to it, but, you know, mild. It's not the point of the beer. Right, right. Well, you know, Phantom being the the, the outlier. But, yeah. You know, DuPont, uh, you know, Blagy, Thierrier, you know, any of those, they they, uh, they kind of scoff at, uh, at Brett. Even <laughs> even Yvonne debates with uh, De La Seine just, you know, refused to acknowledge Brett. And now he's doing, you know, two or three, four beers that are uh, Brett beers. All right. And so then when we get into the world of farmhouse, and you, you just specifically just said American farmhouse, because let's be very clear. Far, farmhouse as a term is a very broad umbrella of things. And that because it covers all these old European traditions, including the stuff that we're seeing out like Norway and Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia, stuff done here in the States, farmhouse as a generic term is a very, very broad barn to be in, but we're talking about American farmhouse and some of the things kind of built off that idea. Right. Right. Um, I guess the, the, you know, the broad family would include, you know, European Saison, uh, beer de garde, Norwegian farmhouse ales, uh, you know, and, and American, I kind of look at, what we're doing in the States as more historic farmhouse sales than, you know, Belgium or France right now, uh, because we're doing, you know, the wild yeast, open fermentation, you know, letting Brett do what it wants to do, uh, that kind of thing where they're, you know, they've been there and done that. And now they're <laughs> concentrating on, you know, a little more of a, a, a clean beer. I remember at Saint somewhere you had a a very specific uh, mixed blend, shall we say? Let me ask you first: with a lot of this kind of American farmhouse and like uh, Brett-driven type beers, to me it seems like a lot of times like breweries who don't necessarily specialize in it, it kind of goes wrong. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where do you think most people are getting getting the, on the wrong foot for? making a farmhouse beer like this? I think what it boils down to is they're thinking that it's just the yeast. You know, I've got a recipe for a blonde. I'm just going to toss, you know, this Saison yeast in there and we have a Saison where it's, um, you know, it's, it's the whole process. I mean, it's, it's the, you know, the equipment, the fermentation, 
you know, yes, it is the East. It's the, you know, your mash tent. It's, it's everything. You just can't, you know, throw, throw something together and, and call it a, a saison or, or a farmhouse. Something I've, I've noticed all along is bread cultures that you, you buy from a, you know, a, a, a yeast supplier. There's a bit of a sameness across the, across the board as opposed to, you know, an ambient bread or taking one of those cultures and letting it go ambient. Or you know, letting it take over your equipment and and going from there, they're they're just a little brighter, a little cleaner, less muddy. You know, it's my my opinion, but I've talked to a lot of other people that are kind of on the same page with that. Well, I'm, it makes some sense because you got to imagine a lot of the yeast companies are drawing from the same banks. That sameness idea wouldn't surprise me at all. Right. You know, you toss it in, that's effectively your first generation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it, it takes a while to, you know, to acclimate to your particular brewing environment. You mentioned uh, ambient capture. There's always that risk with ambient capture, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, because there's, you know, <laughs> you can end up with all kinds of nasties. Or especially, uh, you know, Acetobacter, because the fruit flies are horrible this time of the year going into the summer yeah it turns out if you have a lot of uh rotting vegetation you get fruit flies a lot, a lot of humidity too helps yeah you'd mentioned to you to your mind this farmhouse concept it's more than just the micro the microbiology and you know it's process i mean like you had said on your foundry hey you know you got the ability to do step mashes now do you do step mashes when when you're do you consider that a necessary requirement for making one of these beers um no, I've, I've never done it. I also know that, you know, some of the the better Belgian and French breweries also really don't do a step mash. You know, the malt is so modified now that it's it's not necessary. You know, same with decoction. You know, you can do it. It does add something, but it's not uh, not a necessity. Well, yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to think. When I went to Vapour... And of course, granted, the system at Vapor is an antique. <laughs> yeah, that, that made Saint somewhere look twenty uh, third century. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, for listeners, uh, Brasserie Vapor in uh, Pipe, it's it's literally still run by a steam engine with a giant, terrifying flywheel in the back of the brewery that drives all these belts and chains that are up in the ceiling, and you can shift belts around and make different things happen just on the basis of this steam engine. And yeah, the equipment is, I mean, I think it's all, isn't it? It's still like 1880s, 1890s period yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and yeah, it's it's a it's an absolutely terrifying contraption. But the reason why I bring up Vapor is because when I was there, I copied down what he was doing as uh, as his mash for uh, Saison Pipe at the time. And it was, it was an old school multi-step mash, uh, you know, with like a 122 rest and, you know, 138 or somewhere in that area before rising up into kind of more traditional sacrification uh, rest. But to your point, very old school and probably very much in, in line with the whole philosophy of that place to begin with. Right. And you'd mentioned uh, malt and how enzymatically hot it is. I know some people really ride on this idea that, okay, for something to be truly a farmhouse style beer, it, it needs something like a spelt or a triticale or, you know, like a, another cereal grain other than just barley. 
What do you think? Um, no, I mean it. It's it can, but I I wouldn't say it, it's necessary at all. Um, I always formulated my recipes with uh, you know, a little bit of wheat and a little bit of rye, mainly uh, to give uh, you know to give the head a, a fighting chance. You know, when you're when you're brewing a beer that's absolutely bone dry, you've got to have you know, a little added uh, protein in there or something to, to give you some head retention. But I, DuPont, I think, is 100% uh, Pilsner malt. Yeah, I think that's that's something I've heard as well, yeah. Um, which is interesting given that it has such that nice orange color character to it. It's like, okay, so what mm-hmm. are you guys doing? Hmm. Yeah, Boyle. Yeah. Well, they're, they're a uh, gas-fired uh, brewery. Well, yeah, and they're another very, well, not, Terribly old school brewery, but still relatively old school. Mm-hmm. Not entirely rustic, but getting there. So Pilsner malt, anything else that, that you can think? Because you, you just, you know, you'd said earlier, well, you can't just take a blonde recipe, right? There's other other considerations that, that you have to make here. But it sounds like, at least for you, for malt, it's really Pilsner plus other stuff to necessarily either give a little flavor contribution or to at least try and give some extra albumin to give you a little bit of a rocky head. Yeah. And that's uh, my, not to give too much away, but my standard recipe was uh, for pretty much everything. I would start with 85% uh, Pilsner, uh, 10% malted wheat, Mm -hmm. either red wheat or white wheat and uh, 5% flaked rye. That was my starting point on every single beer we did, whether it was, uh, you know, three and a half, four percent grisette or uh, something like, you know, Lectio that was eight percent. It's good because it gives you a a known area of what you're starting from. And then you can make thoughtful adjustments off of that. Right. Right. All right. And so with the mash, again, single infusion, but I mean, particularly since we are trying to get these beers dry, do you find any advantage to the idea of going like for a longer mash time or is it just, mm, no, it's done. I've always done a, a kind of an extended mash. Um, you know, I'll do an hour, no less, never any less than an hour. I mean, if it converts in 20 minutes, fine. I still let it go for an hour. Also mash, uh, you know, you, you've got a, for Saison, you got to mash low mm-hmm. or else you're again, just <laughs> make it a Blondale. So I'd, I'd recommend, you know, lower than you think is is prudent. So somewhere around 143, 145 at the most, hmm. and, and go from there. I always shot for 143. Interesting. I am variably, I'm always at like 147, 148, but I'll have to give the 143, 144 a shot. Do you just feel like you're getting that much more sort of short chain sugars when you're when you're down that low? Yeah, I'm getting, um, you know, more attenuative work. You know, I've done a few beers where I've, I've bumped it up uh, to 150 and just uh, I wasn't uh, particularly happy with them. So 143 is my, my sweet spot. So 143 for about 60 minutes and then or at least 60 minutes. Then with, with like hopping and whatnot, again, these aren't IPAs. Right. Do you typically do something like a first word hopping or anything like that? Or is it just, you know, like 60 minute and whatever else you need? No, I, I started, <laughs> I, I started doing first word hopping at, at the very beginning. 
for one, I didn't have to worry about timing. So I, I always do a, a two-hour boil. So first word hop, I didn't have to put a timer on. Okay, you know, 60 minutes, you got to be doing this. And I, I, if possible, I'd like to stick with, uh, with noble hops or, you know, noble hop adjacent. So no mosaic? No. <laughs> you know, for, for bittering, I, I got to the point where, you know, I was experimenting around with, with very expensive noble hops and somehow ended up, you know, buying a, a bunch of, uh, Willamette you know, at a pretty good price. And it was, you know, same year harvest. Use that, saw no difference for the bittering charge. So from there on, it was Willamette uh, in the boil. Oh, and that's like me, where it's magnum is always the boil. Yeah. Good, clean, simple hop. Get out of the way. It's relatively cheap. Yep. If you're doing those hops at effectively for two hours, because you said an extended boil, and they went in as first ward hops, right? Correct. Did you ever find that there was any difference in character from having the hops in for that long? Because I know you got some some science basically says if you go more than about, I think it's what, 90 to 100 minutes with the hops and certain deleterious effects can happen. But I've never been able to really quantify that. No, not that I've ever realized any anything negative. And, and technically, between the time I would, uh, would pitch the hops and knockout would be three hours or better because it, it it would take it about an hour uh, to fill the, the kettle and almost that long to, you know, same time to, to get the boil and then two hour boils, three hours. Well, and see, and that's one thing I think homebrewers often miss when talking about things being done at the professional level is that there's a really woogie extra time factor being involved there. It turns out that when you're dealing with that many gallons of liquid, things take time. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just waiting to get up to boil. It's waiting to fill, then waiting to get to boil, you know, then the time to drain it. And uh, yeah. 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 It turns out five gallons is a lot faster than 250 gallons. <laughs> well, it, you know, it can be, um, you know, with the all in one systems, it's a lot faster. But, you know, if you're if you're using a, a three vessel system, it's a it's a little faster, but it's still it's still a long day. Well, I mean, again, it's two hours worth of work crammed into eight hours. <laughs> yeah, a lot of waiting. We got that long, we got a long boil. We got those hops in there forever in a day. I'm going to guess any of the sort of late kettle additions, post kettling additions, that's all going to vary on based on what you're using and what the goal of the beer is. I know like some of your beers, for instance, have like rosemary because you commented right. once that my rosemary bush out front would had kept Saint somewhere in rosemary for decades. <laughs> like when you, when you're doing something like a a spice edition like a rosemary always on the kettle side for that? Um yeah, I would. I would uh pretty much 100% of the time uh, any of those additions would go in uh, at the whirlpool stage. So, you know, boils off, whirlpool, uh then, you know, towards the end where we're, you know, 10-15 minutes from uh knocking out you know, I'd, I'd put the additions in knowing that it's like we discussed earlier, it's going to be in there another hour between the time it's in and the time everything is drained out. And you still have plenty of heat for sanitization and for, you know, ex extraction and all that sort of good stuff. Yeah, of course. All right. Now let's get into the, into the, the fun of it. 
Uh, let's get into the fermentation and the micros. You and I are both advocates of open fermentation. And to be, to be clear, when we say open fermentation, we don't mean open to the sky, right? It's not, not in a bucket with no lid. Cause you were using, uh, those old Italian wine tanks that basically have just a loose lid on top. Correct. And I've always advocated at the homebrew level. It's like, okay, remove the airlock and slap a piece of foil over the top of your carboy or pop the pressure relief valve on the keg that you're using and put a piece of foil over that. And, you know, Bob's your uncle. You have open fermentation. Yeah. That's so for you, what do you think the, what do you think the advantage to doing open fermentation is knowing that? I mean, there is a risk with open fermentation, but if you're on your, on your game, you can minimize that. Uh, I kind of stumbled into it uh, just out of ignorance, I guess. It's when, uh, when I opened state somewhere, there really was nothing else like that going on anywhere in the country. Closest would have been, you know, uh, Ron Jeffries at, at Jolly Pumpkin, but he was, you know, he was doing fermentation and then barrel aging. And, you know, it was, a, it was the end product was in a complete different direction. And I, I came about all this, frankly, just by accident. I couldn't afford conicals at that point. Uh, because, you know, if you go back to 2005, 2006, there weren't, you know, 500 different manufacturers from, you know, the U.S. and China and the Czech Republic. You know, there was like uh, JV Northwest and, you know, one or two others. And they were all expensive. To get a seven-barrel conical, you had to order it months in advance. So I, uh, I figured, well, you know, these, these wine tanks look fine. They're jacketed. If I ever want to use the jackets, you know, you see pictures of them in, in some of the Belgian breweries that are kind of the same. So I'm like, man, let me try these. Well, I was going to say, I think Danny has tanks very similar to what St. Somewhere used. Yeah. His, his are a little more, they'll, they'll take pressure. I mean, they, they look the same on the outside. I think they're more uh, white wine tanks, which, you know, you close and pressurize. Uh, these are, essentially red wine tanks. Uh, you can't pressurize them. And they're semi-flat on the bottom, slope bottom. So it makes it a little harder to, to pull yeast off of. And the, the open fermentation part just, again, came quite accidentally because I, I never intended to do that at the beginning because that was unheard of. Who the hell's open fermenting in that kind of environment? You know, you had... You know, Anchor had some open fermenters, uh, Sierra Nevada, Sam Smith, you know, those kind of things, but not what I was doing. And I figured, you know, what the hell, Let's, we'll see what happens. And uh, it, it worked out. I, I, I noticed a marked difference in, uh, in the yeast health, the activity, uh, the end product of the beer. Uh, and it, it became... That became my my go to process was the open ferment and um, flat bottom tanks, or you know as flat as feasible, uh, and that's that's Saint somewhere. There, uh, the story in the glass. Now 
the open fermentation part, I, uh, I'm totally, I totally got because I see this, uh, I see the same thing. Like, you know, you take any of those classic saison yeast and they just seem to do better. They're more expressive. The fermentation mechanics work better. Uh, you don't see the, the stall in the same way that people report when they do it in closed tanks. The flat bottom aspect, what do you think that gives you? You get a little different convection going on. You have more surface area for the yeast to act. Pale yeast, they call top fermenting, but you know, it, it, it does also ferment from the bottom to the point where, you know, I could lift the lid and, you know, usually one or two days into fermentation, it, it's boiling. I mean, it just looks like boiling wort. It, it's extremely active. And I guess it was uh, uh, Yvonne DeBates, again, from, from De La Seine, that uh, kind of did a little more digging and, and research into uh, tank geometry. And for what we're doing, he did his research and, and figured that flat bottom, straight side, shallow fermentation. So if your width and height are as close to the same as, as feasible, you, uh, you end up with a better product. Right. And doesn't, uh, DuPont uses squares, right? Right. Which would make sense then. <laughs> Blaze right into that. Yeah. They're pretty much what he was, you know, shooting for the uh, ratio of, of height to width and as flat a bottom as possible. You know, if you look at Budweiser, you know, they have their, their beechwood aging. I mean, it's not aged on beechwood because beechwood is very neutral, but they, they put the beechwood in there to give the yeast more surface area to act on because the, the yeast, falls onto the, the beechwood shavings rather than just piling up. And that's that's their purpose for beechwood aging. Yeah, well, and I think it also helps that they're doing all their lagering in basically a block-long horizontal tank. Yeah, that you can walk into. All right, so we get we get a flat-bottom tank. We do open fermentation. Obviously, I think for most home brewers, open fermentation is going to be the easiest thing to do. Uh, if they were really obsessive about tank geometry and wanted to do it on the cheap, those uh, HDPE uh, jerry cans that we've talked about before for no chill brewing, those mm-hmm. are those are squares. That would be the that would be the right the right size, and you could you could mimic that sort of geometry that way fairly easily. Yeah, um, and I think there are even people out there who are using like food service cambros. To do the same thing, you can also do it with uh, you know brewing buckets. Just uh, split a five gallon batch between two buckets. There you go. For you, when you're doing these your ferments, what if any sort of temperature regime were you trying to do? Was it you know were you trying to be rigorous about it or more loosey goosey? Initially, I was bent on well, this, these are going to be Florida beers and. You know, I stuck with uh, saison yeast because you could ferment at ambient Florida temperatures, and that that worked really well for man, about two, three years. Matter of fact, I, I had the same yeast strain for about three years. I, mean, I, I went, you know, many generations. I forgot exactly how many, but it was you know it was upwards of a hundred generations of the same yeast, and it worked extremely well and then i got an infection and after that i had to replace the yeast got the same same yeast same manufacturer or same uh, yeast lab just never was never the same and i would uh i kept getting this repeated just real virulent infection to the point where i would brew 
And I'd come in the next day, and as soon as I got out of the car and opened the door, I'd, I'd get hit with this just overwhelming sulfur, just, mm-hmm. and couldn't figure it out, you know, for the life of me. I mean, I, you know, I did CIP like, you know, you wouldn't believe. I, you know, got to the point where I, you know, I CIP'd with, with bleach and water, which, you know, is the big no-no for stainless, but. You know, I, I I was desperate to get rid of whatever that was, and at the time, uh, Sean Johnson, who is now Birds Fly South, was working with me, and he was doing his you know, effectively kind of his his master's thesis for uh, officers training school for uh, the Coast Guard, and what he did was hook up glycol system for uh, mm-hmm. Saint Somewhere. So I had a chiller that I bought years earlier, just sitting in there. It was brand new. Got it from Pro Chiller. They had some kind of closeout deal, so I bought it, knowing that you know eventually I'd, I'd probably want to use one. So we we hooked that up, got everything going. About that same time, I, I took my first trip uh, to Belgium, and you know, speaking to like Daniel Thierrier, you know, Yvonne, Pierre Alex at uh, Blaugy they kind of laugh when I was telling them, yeah, I, I let it go to, you know, 90, you know, they, they, uh, typically don't go that high. You know, they will cap everything at 68, 70, 72. So that's what I did. And fortunately that kind of saved us because I, I was losing enough beer where I, I really had nothing going out the door. It was all going down the drain and couldn't exactly afford that at the time. So that, uh, that was our, our saving grace, getting that uh, glycol chiller hooked up and running. Once again, Cezanne's are not quikes. <laughs> not at all. Well, and then the mixed part of your culture. So you started you started with that Cezanne house cheese. Where did the uh, where did the the fun stuff come in? Well, I, I knew I wanted to use Brett, you know, from the onset. And again, this is you know the dark days, and you had to um, you had to order Brett at least two weeks in advance as you know, I, I guess they didn't, they didn't keep it going. So you'd order it. They'd prop up a batch and, and send it out. You know, for each seven barrel batch, it was, it was costing just for the bread. It was, it was almost 400 bucks. I'm thinking, you know, geez, this is, you know, that's a lot of money for a little bit of bread that, uh, you know, wineries, you know, try to keep out. So I, Figured, you know, eh, I, I want to do everything with Brett, so we might as well Brett the whole place. So I, uh, I ordered a uh, two-barrel pitchable instead of the seven, put it in uh, in a pump sprayer, filled that up with uh, just some, some spring water, and just sprayed everything down. Sprayed the walls, the ceiling, the fermenters, ran it through the hoses, soaked all my uh, gaskets in it, just breaded the whole facility and it took, you know, it took a good month or so for that really to kick in. But after that, I never, uh, never had to add a, a pitch of bread. And I even carried, carried that over to our new location. Well, yeah, I remember the new location has all the extra rafters in it. Yes. As I'm listening to you describe that process, I'm thinking about every, as you said, every winemaker, and every German brewer who probably just shuddered 
without knowing why. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it was a pretty ridiculous thing to do at, at the time because that was, you know, there were maybe two Brett beers in the entirety of the U S at that point, you know, it was just not a, not a thing. Never having to buy bread again. Did you ever run into problems where the, you know, the culture was petering out or you had some unintentional side effect downstream, like something new growing in the mix that you didn't want? And how would you deal with that? You know, Florida, especially Tarpon Springs where we were, uh, was not, we were, you know, a couple of blocks from, from the Gulf. And during the summer and late summer, you know, the, the Gulf water is, is uncomfortably warm. I mean, it, it gets into the mid to high eighties. So between that, the humidity, you know, you, you've, you're constantly fighting black mold. So between, you know, trying to, trying to keep the, the mold at bay everywhere was a little detrimental to, you know, our, our resident, uh, bread culture. And that's, that was really my main reason when we moved to double the number of, of exposed beams or rafters in the ceiling. You know, it was high enough, it's wood, not really going to mold like the walls and the, you know, the glycol lines and all that wood. So that was, that was my fix on that. And, you know, the, any of the beer we brewed in, in the winter quotes, which is, you know, it's Florida. We're always a little cleaner as far as Brett than spring and summer beers. It's almost like it's brewing history come to life. <laughs> yeah. There was a reason that people didn't brew during the summer. Yep. Now that you mentioned the Gulf water, it just throws me right back to childhood and thinking of like the, all those warm summers spent over in places like Tarpon Spring and, and just the very unique smell of, <laughs> of the Gulf during that period. Yeah. Especially if, you know, the, about a red tide comes through or yep. just, just low tide. You know, if the water's in the, in the mid eighties, high eighties, uh, it, it's just, it's not fun to go into. I mean, you, you know, you go to the beach, yeah, I'm going to go to the beach, forget hot, I'll go in the water. doesn't work that way. You go in the water, you come out, you know, hotter than before you went in. You come out partially stewed. <laughs> yeah. That's the reason why everybody looks like prunes in Florida. So with that mix that mixed culture that you just kind of established in the brewery and just let it run. It's kind of interesting. I'm trying to think like if I was doing this as a home brewer, then I would just have to, I guess, have dedicated equipment for that particular bit of the processing, right? Like unless everything I was going to make was going to be breaded. Right. And it, uh, on a homebrew level, eventually everything you make will be breaded. Yeah, it's true. Just, I mean, there's, you know, it, it's, it gets in, gets in the air and, you know, you touch something, it, you know, you, you carry it over. Unless you just clean everything, and then that kind of defeats the purpose. Let me ask you about the bread, though, because I always think that one of the problems that people have with sort of these American farmhouse Brett Ford type saisons is that they become Brett beers, right? They become full on Brett Ford type beers as opposed to actual like saisons with a kiss of Brett. Yeah. Do you feel that some of that is just due to? Like people going out there and getting those pure cultures and using like full dosing rates and and everything, as opposed to having something that's sort of more background radiation levels. Yeah, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head Um, because you know the, especially on the professional level, the 
yeast labs want to sell you, you know, the same amount of bread to fully ferment a batch as to just, you know, let's call it season it with, with a little bread. I think there's some place in the Milk the Funk wiki where they talk about Britannomyces dosing and its impact on on character and over time not seeing as much of a, a an impact. But to me, I think the more important part is the idea of co-pitching. And in your case, I mean, you're co-pitching just by exposure. Uh, but if, if people, if people are playing around with cultures and they want to have a more controlled or more subdued bread experience, then one of the big tools that they can use is to pitch the bread at the same time that they're pitching the yeast. Uh, and that will typically, at least according to the science, control some of that effusive bread expression. Yes. I mean, my, let's say fermenting yeast or, you know, sack yeast, I always pitched a, uh, not a not a new pitch, but a, a cleaned pitch. So we we would co-ferment. You know, I'd, I'd pitch a sack strain, and then you know let the the ambient breath and whatever else was in the air act on it. I know it's a clean pitch because I would yeast wash with uh, chlorine dioxide every time. Yeah, a, l- a little bit of a nuclear powered clean. <laughs> yeah. All right. So pitch pitch clean. Small amount of bread at the same time, and then control your temperatures. Don't go overboard, and really try and push for an expression of the the yeast as opposed to necessarily a big expression on the bread. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you take care of your yeast, uh, the the bread will come, so to speak. Uh, the bread will follow. Any other thoughts that you have on the idea of like how to make a top-notch farmhouse beer that, again, gives you that rustic character, but doesn't necessarily overrun everything? It's got to be bottle-conditioned or keg-conditioned. I mean, there's no there's no substitute. The bottle or keg-conditioning cleans things up, rounds things out. You get that nice, fine meringue head mm-hmm. that you, you just can't get force-carving. You know, it's worth the extra whopping 10 days to, you know, to keg or bottle condition. I would, uh, you know, I would say that's not a negotiable item. The one term that would be negotiable is the color of the bottle, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> green bottle. Yeah, Bob is the uh, capo de capo of the green bottle mafia. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I go as far as to say I, I pretty much saved the green bottle for the U.S., you know, nobody was using green bottles. Nobody. And, uh, you know, I'm like, uh, I want to brew as absolutely traditional as possible and put up with a tremendous amount of crap for the first three, four years to the point where I kind of like threw up my hands and, and went with brown bottles for a year. And uh, the beer just was not the same at all. And then went right back to green glass and sailed from there. And and talked a bunch of other people into uh, into green bottles. Yep. And then the meanwhile, I mean, what like Phantom is still in green bottles, but yeah. Oh yeah. Any anything coming out of Belgium, um, you know, du- Dupont did not switch to brown bottles because they're still using green. They're doing both. Although I think I think the greens are usually the ones that end up here because all the ones I've seen in Belgium have all been brown. It is what it is. What do you think the green bottle gives other than light strike? Just, just that, that little bit of, of light strike, which, um, 
you know, it's part and parcel to a, uh, a saison or farmhouse sale. It's, it's part of the character. I usually say, well, you know, caviar salty, linen wrinkles, and uh, farmhouse sales have that little bit of light strike, which port in a glass and it blows off in the first 10 seconds. Right. And, and just to remind people, when we're talking about light strike, it's that characteristically skunky sort of aroma the, uh, that uh, was it methyl mercaptan. That kind of thing. Yeah. And it is, it is very volatile, but yeah, it, it, I mean, it is a thing that you will find in a green bottled beer. And I, it's funny. I always associate it more with beer to guards than I do with saisons because for a while there, I don't think I ever had a bottle of gin lane that wasn't somehow light struck. Yeah. Um, and usually not for the better. So green, green bottles. If you're going to follow the Bob, uh, the Bob school of a uh, farmhouse brewing, uh, the the green bottle the green bottle mafia will thank you. Yep. What about flavors? What what are your thoughts on flavors in these things? Because we had talked that you put, you know, rosemary in in one of yours. In general, when you're looking at flavors, like what do you? What's your philosophy on that? Um, I'm more in the you know herb type school rather than you know fruit or. Yeah, you know, I've I've done. I did Caitlin with uh, with whole dried orange. You know, did Caroline with, uh, with whole coffee. But I think outside of those, I, I pretty much stuck to dry, you know, herbaceous type things. You know, we did hibiscus flowers, uh, the rosemary, chamomile, palmetto berries, you know, any, anything kind of, you know, on, almost on the, on the culinary scale. No marshmallow extract. No, no. <laughs> Let's yeah, put the marshmallows in the Randall later and run it through. There you go. Uh, God, somebody's probably done that too. Yeah. <laughs> it shouldn't, uh, again, this is, you know, the old school me. Uh, whatever adjunct you put in there should not be the dominant flavor. You know, you should have to either think about it or try something and go, man, I, I really like what's in there, but I just can't put my finger on it. You know, if you pop open a, a, a bottle and you go, Ooh, man, that's lavender. Then they, they've definitely overdone it because it's now no longer a Saison with lavender. It's a lavender Saison. Yes. Or grandmother's soap. Actually the, the problem with lavender is it's a fine line between, Oh, that's interesting. And, <laughs> yeah. and full on old lady perfume. Yeah. I, I pick that because it's, you know, like you said, it could be very overwhelming very quickly. Uh, a, th- a thin line between Saturday evening and Sunday morning. <laughs> yeah. To quote Buffett. I, I got to quote Buffett with you. Yeah. Bob, I know you are semi-retired. You're now a cranky home brewer. Any last words? No, just, you know, hashtag green bottle. Hashtag <laughs> green bottle. I will say the uh, first two beers I brewed as a home brewer were a, uh, a Belgian dark strong straight up. No Brett, you know, good Chimay Blue uh, knockoff, and a uh, old school English uh, barley wine, Maris Otter, Fuggles, and EKGs. Loving them, loving them both. Why, why stay small, right? <laughs> yeah. Plus, I'm a little burned out on uh, you know on the, on the dry and sour after you know fifteen twenty years. I, you know, I still enjoy a, a Saison or, you know, a, a, a Lambic or, you know, Flemish Red, but 
right now I, I seem to have a craving for uh, big malty beers. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, I've been going through, as people who listen to this podcast know, I've been going through a renaissance on cream ales recently. Well, there you go. Don't ask me why. It's what it's what my, my palate's craving. All right. Well, sir, thank you so much. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at Bob's take on the farmhouse ale. Now, I'm not sure I'm quite ready to have a deliberate, full-on house pet named Brett. But with some good care, you can follow Bob's advice for making a farmhouse that isn't taken over by your ravenous house guest. Now, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at Denny at experimentalbrew or Drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us at Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA or BOIO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is K9 Warriors helping take rescue animals and making them into suitable companions for those in need. Now, until next time, remember, the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. 